Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. And welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kellen McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Over the five years or so that I've been doing this podcast, we've returned repeatedly to the question of why genocides begin, what leads societies to decide that genocide, rather than less extensive kinds of violence, is the best solution to their problems, and why some societies decide against genocidal violence. Today, we're gonna continue that conversation with my guest, Maureen Heber. Maureen is a political scientist who teaches at the University of Calgary uh, in the Department of Political Science and is also associated with the Center for Military Security and Strategic Studies there. And she's written a fascinating new book, Crafting a Theory of Genocide. Titled Constructing Genocide and Mass Violence, the book lays out a carefully constructed and methodologically sophisticated explanation for why some conflicts become genocidal while others do not. Her explanation builds on those of previous theorists, but disagrees with them in important ways. If you're a new listener to the podcast, I encourage you to go back and listen to interviews with Scott Strauss, Daniel Feierstein, Martin Shaw, and Ernesto Verdeja, all of whom have something to say about this question. Uh, And Maureen refers to them and builds on their ideas. Uh, But she goes beyond that to craft a theory uh, of her own, which is distinctive, and new. It's a, it's a thoughtful and provocative book, and, and I'm looking forward to discussing it with her. So, Maureen, welcome, and thanks for joining us on New Books and Genocide Studies. Oh, hi, Kelly. Thanks for inviting me. Pleased to be here. So, we always start with the same question, um, and it's meant to be simple, and it often isn't. Um, so, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you become an academic, and, and, and why political science? Well, that's a really interesting question. When I went to university as an undergraduate student. At my university, I entered the Faculty of Arts and took a year of general studies. That's what everybody had to do. Mm. And I wasn't intending to take political science as a major. In fact, I only ended up taking it because I had to pick one more course. And my mother, who was a staff member at the University of Manitoba, pointed out that the political science course fit my schedule. So <laughs> I thought I was going to go to university, most likely to become an English major. But as huh. it turned out, I absolutely bombed in first year English, but did much better in political science. And I was hooked as soon as I started taking that class, which was just regular intro to poli sci. And so I, I did a BA honors at the University of Manitoba, which is in, in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Uh, After that, I did a two-year master's at Carleton University in Ottawa, Uh, and it was at that time that I kind of began began to look at uh, not so much political violence, but Southeast Asian politics, which Mm. is part of one of the reasons why one of my case studies in the book is Cambodia. So I wrote my master's thesis on uh, the Vietnamese Communist Party uh, and then I went to do a PhD at the University of Toronto. And so when I first applied to the uh, PhD program, I thought that what I would do my dissertation on would be how the reintegration of North and South Vietnam worked as a political process. But then in the intervening kind of months before I started the, disserta- the PhD program, my then partner, now husband, and I went off to Europe And this was in 1994. So we arrived Mm. in April of 1994. And we were poor students with no money. And so we stayed at youth hostels. This was before the internet and all that kind of stuff, really. And so we were toured around Europe for about six weeks. And by the time we arrived back in Paris to fly home, we bought an English language newspaper and sat in the Jardin des Plantes. And I opened up this newspaper and it said, death toll in Rwanda approximately 400,000. And we were both like, I have no idea what this story is about because Mm. we missed the whole genocide while we were on vacation. And so I was just, you know, we had 
contemplated going to some Holocaust sites, some concentration camp sites, but just couldn't bring ourselves to do it. Just mentally, we just couldn't manage it. So I was sitting there thinking, how could this happen again? I just don't understand it. So I went off to start my PhD, still thinking I was going to do my original research topic. But when it became time to write my proposal, I just thought, you know, I'm not interested in this reintegration thing anymore. Mm. What I really want to know is the answer to that question. How could this happen again? You know, I, it's remarkable how often people who study mass violence have a story like that. I was actually yeah. in uh, preparing. I had a Fulbright to study in Vienna to do my dissertation. And so in March and April and May of 1994, um, I was getting ready to uh, leave the country for the first time. I was trying to figure out if my uh, partner at that point now spouse were going to get married or whether this was going to lead to us breaking up. <laughs> um, and and similarly, I kind of looked up in my case in September and October uh, in Vienna and recognized how many refugees there were from Bosnia oh. walking the same streets I was. Oh. And um, I've heard that story again and again and again. I wonder, how does that affect your scholarship or how might that affect your scholarship. Many people who come academically come first through the lens of scholarship and only then through the lens of the world they live in. Does, does it make a difference in how you approach the subject? I think in some ways it does because I have sort of almost two minds about how I, I think about genocide. On the one hand, I have my political science brain hmm. in which I can think about genocide as a phenomenon uh, where we can compare across cases, because I'm, I'm mostly a comparative politics person, so that's the methodological approach that we take to understanding political phenomenon. I see genocide uh, along a d bunch of different axes, but as a political scientist, I see it mostly as a political act in many ways and involves political actors and institutions. Mm -hmm. And so I can think about genocide as a search for the logic of this form of violence the structures and processes that lead to it happening that are part of its unfolding. But on the other hand, I have this part of my brain in which repeatedly I have thought over the years, I just don't understand why this happens. Mm -hmm. Just as a human being, I still don't understand why it happens. It's just so big. It's so awful. Uh, I, it's, I said one time in a little piece I wrote, uh, it blows my mind that genocide has ever happened and that it seems to continue to happen in all sorts of different places, in all sorts of different ways, perpetrated by all sorts of different groups against all sorts of different kinds of people. Mm -hmm. You know, so it spans from you know, indige you know, indigenous genocides in, say, you know, Canada, which was, you know, mostly nonviolent, at least in an official way, but through the reservation system, the residential schools, the 60s scoop, of, which is a kind of um, a, a large a kind of removal of children into the mm. social services system and then having these children adopted out to white families, uh, to things like the Holocaust on this really enormous scale, uh, to cases that are part of other forms of conflict, so counterinsurgencies, for example, in, in Guatemala. Uh, and so I, I've never been able to kind of uh, reconcile these two parts of my brain, the analytical part that can seem to come to grips with what's going on in some way. And then the part of me as a human being who is still completely incredulous. Mm -hmm. No, I, I, I completely understand that. So so as a political scientist, some of our listeners are political scientists, but many are not. What okay. What are the advantages in terms of using political science as a lens for understanding genocide? And, and are there, I don't know if disadvantages, but but um, are there things that you have to recognize that political science maybe doesn't do well? I think the, let me start with the what I think it does, and yeah. then I'll, I'll move on to what I, I think it doesn't do well. I think what it helps me do is to try to figure out what's going on at the elite level. And, and that's where I think its strengths lie. So I, I don't think it's particularly useful for trying to figure out why ordinary people become perpetrators 
Um, but it is useful, I think, in trying to figure out how it is that uh, either small groups of people or you know, per particular kinds of institutions, mostly in, uh, in a state actor, come to make this decision. So I, I see genocide as a kind of really awful policy. It's mm -hmm. a policy decision. So usually we're talking about political elites of some kind, civilian, military, some combination of the two, who confront some kind, usually, of, of a crisis or series of crises, and then they need to make a decision about what to do. When they make this decision, though, they're doing it in a thoroughly embedded kind of way. They've got a set of ideas about what has happened, and more importantly, in the case that, that turn out to be genocidal, of who is responsible and what kind of threats that group might pose in the future. And so in, in many ways, I see decision-making in genocide as a political act. They are acting as political actors, and they're making political decisions about what they think the policy, the polity rather, is, what it ought to look like, what threats it faces, and how those threats need to be countered. But I, I think the thing that political science can't do, and my book doesn't really do this either, uh, is to try to figure out how it is that members of society become part of this whole process. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't really engage with um, social institutions, say the education system or uh, religious institutions. Uh, and it can't really get into the kind of really deep um, ethnographic experiential research that, say, anthropologists do. So in, in my own uh, kind of engagement with genocide studies and in the crafting of this book, I drew very heavily on the works of anthropologists, sociologists, and historians who have you know, this really rich kind of um, empirical and, and theoretical understanding of the totality all put together of what genocide is as a phenomenon. And then political scientists, I think, can add this kind of... Um, kind of uh, engagement with the role that the state or in, say, if we're talking about ISIS, that non-state actors play and how they engage in a set of, you know, as Valentino tells us, a set of strategic calculations about what they want to accomplish, how to get beyond um, opposition to what they want to do, uh, and and the way they conceptualize of threats and then deal with those threats. Mm. So let's think about that in terms of your book. Um, and I don't often phrase it this way, but it seems an appropriate way to start. Every academic has to have somehow an elevator speech version of their book. What's your elevator speech summary of, of your book? My elevator speech summary is that I'm trying to figure out why it is that certain circumstances very rarely turn out mm. to be genocidal rather than some other form of repression or violence. And so, as I said, it's usually a response to some kind of crisis. And so the explanation we can have, I think, is to look backward at first to understand the kinds of, not exactly political culture, but the kind of socioeconomic environment, political environment within which these kinds of crises arise, how the eventual perpetrators uh, come to conceptualize their victims and how they draw both on the past, but also understand crises as kind of read through this past to then come up with a constructed identity of their mm -hmm. victims as mortal threats who can only be neutralized through their extermination. And this is, from the perpetrator's point of view, an entirely rational and strategic act. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's it's one that arises in a kind of construction of the victim that creates an altered and perverse strategic and moral universe in which genocide, extermination, becomes the right and only possible thing to do to neutralize a threat that doesn't really exist in reality. So the construction of the victim group and the threat it supposedly poses is wholly out of sync with the reality of the victim group's actual place in society. Um, that's really good. It's too bad you're not looking for a job. But um, <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so you used a word that comes from, a, a, or, or that is associated with a particular theory of 
international relations or, or society. Uh, constructivism. So, so for people who are not familiar with that, what what does it mean for an identity or a, 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 a history to be constructed? Right. So constructivism is working in in well, there's many different forms of constructivism, mm -hmm. but in its its kind of essence, it's trying to get away from the idea for especially if we're talking about identity, either of the individual in international relations. It really comes out of the identity of states, so how a state sees itself and how it sees other states in the international system. And so instead of resting the kind of relationship between states on ob objective um, factors, power capabilities, that kind of stuff, how big a military is, how the size of GDP, all that kind of stuff, uh, international relations constructivist theory particularly by Alexander Wendt, so working in the 1990s, he basically said that how states act in the international system is basically what they make of this situation of anarchy. Mm. And it all really depends on who a state thinks it is and what it thinks its relationship is with other states. And so I found that that was a kind of interesting kind of way to get into how perpetrators might come to see a group of people who say, historically, in, in many cases of what become genocide eventually, have been marginal, have been suspect, and how it can move from that kind of conception being, as I say kind in the book, sort of latent and relatively benign to something that becomes manifest and uh, the thing that, that triggers genocide. And so what I, what I suggest is that perpetrators come to see their victims as overwhelmingly threatening and powerful, even though this is actually not the case. So that's the mm -hmm. constructed part of it, right? So they're, the, the, the perpetrators have come in their own perception to see the victim group in a way that is not grounded in reality. But it, I'm suggesting in the book that it is, does come out of a very long history of social interaction between these groups that has been uh, unequal, exclusionary and and contentious so you use the image of a funnel uh, a funnel with three parts can, can you maybe briefly explain that image and what those three parts are sure so what I what I use the funnel to do is to try to get at three different moments in which we go from a relatively wide set of circumstances that can have all sorts of possible mm. outcomes to an increasingly narrow set of circumstances that then at the end, the pointy end of the funnel culminates in, or is much more likely to culminate in genocide. Mm. So that the three parts are basically the, the three bits of the book. So the book starts with an engagement with uh, what I call a, a permissive socioeconomic mm. environment. So this is the wide end of the funnel and it really has three different parts. One is that there is an exclusionary set of intergroup relations historically between those who are the eventual perpetrators and those who are the eventual victims. The second related component to that is an exclusionary set of conceptions about um, who are genuine or, or proper members of the political community, who are really members of the community and who are marginal or even outside of it. And then the last part, which is the more political science-y part, is a, a long history of um, authoritarian responses to conflicts in society. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not suggesting here that it's authoritarian regimes necessarily that perpetrate genocides always, but it's authoritarian responses to uh, conflicts in society. And so it's a kind of a zero-sum approach to dealing with conflict rather than uh, a capacity for or willingness to engage in compromise and consensus building, it's a kind of sharp response, usually by the state in this case, to uh, what real and perceived challenges to the authority of the state. And so that's the wide end of the funnel. It's the mm -hmm. wide end because these three things together could result in all sorts of different kinds of, um, say, conflict. So you might have a civil war that could come out of this kind of permissive environment. Uh, you might have some other kind of repression. And so that's why it's kind of, uh, it's setting the stage, but not necessarily for genocide. At this point, genocide could be one of many possible outcomes. So then the, the middle part of the funnel is 
crises. And this is something that's been explored many, many times in the genocide studies literature. And so what I wanted to do was to kind of reinforce uh, that I think that crises really are these really important trigger mechanisms. They don't themselves, whether they're, say, you know, I, I have three kinds of crises, so political instability, uh, economic crises, so uh, recessions and depressions, and security crises, particularly losses and armed conflicts, um, that these aren't themselves the thing that cause genocides to happen in and of themselves. But instead, it's really more a matter of how elite political actors understand what these crises mean. So here's another kind of constructivist component. So crises, I say, are read through the first part of the funnel that I just talked about. Mm. Exclusionary practices, exclusionary conceptions of the community, and an already existing political habit of dealing with crises and, and threats from society by the state in, uh, in zero-sum authoritarian kind of ways. And so when we have these kind of intense crises, we already have a tendency by elite actors who are responding to them to all have already identified certain groups as suspect and to potentially blame them for these crises. So this is the middle part of the funnel because we don't yet have genocide as the most probable outcome. All we know at this point is that elite actors have identified a particular group or groups as responsible for a crisis and that they might pose a kind of generalized threat into the future. But at this point, we're most likely to face some kind of bad outcome, repression of the group, uh, possibly violence against that group, but that might take a bunch of different forms. So we don't know, we're not necessarily on the road to genocide yet. The pointy end of the funnel, where I suggest that on the balance of probabilities, we're more likely to end up with genocide than some other kind of violent outcome, is when we have this kind of three-pronged um, construction of the victim group, again, in the kind of wake of a crisis. So as elite actors are trying to process what they think a crisis means, we end up with genocide when their understanding of that crisis leads them to see the victim group or groups in three interrelated ways, which I call switches. Mm -hmm. So the first switch is to see them as foreigners, to see a, a group that had historically been often marginal or suspect, but still part of the political community, as now foreign to it, as outsiders, as alien, and who are then stripped of their political rights, their capacity to belong in a real substantive way. And then this leaves that group vulnerable to what is now a predatory state, a state that no longer is protecting them through the provision of political rights, for example, now the state has turned on these people. Now, even at this moment, we're not necessarily facing genocide. We can have all sorts of in-group, out-group dynamics that can lead to, say, uh, a civil conflict, or particularly if the victim group has some kind of resources, or some other kind of repression. Uh, this, the second switch is what I think is really critical. If this second switch mm. is turned on, then I think we're most likely to end up with a genocidal outcome. And this is what I call the, the mortal threat conception. So it's not just a matter in the first switch of seeing uh, a previously inside but marginal group now as outsiders or foreign. There has to be a second switch in which this group is seen as a mortal threat. And really critically to this, I think, is that this mortal threat conception is not linked to the actual power capabilities of the group, uh, they objectively have very little by way of power or they've been systematically stripped of it intentionally. And so there is a kind of understanding that the fact that the group remains alive, that is the source of the power that they possess and that is the source of the threat that they pose. Mm. So, so what does this kind of look like? So I break this down into three threat motifs. Uh, the first one is this kind of epic battle motif in which the perpetrators construct this history in which they have always been involved in this kind of epic, ba epic battle for survival with the victims. And only one can come out on top. And if the victim group is left alive, they will cause the physical destruction of the perpetrators. So it's a literal fight to the death. Mm. The second is this kind of connection to 
uh, to powerful external forces. And this can work one of two ways. Either it can be that the victim group is said to be a powerful hand behind outside uh, powerful forces. So say the Jews during the Second World War, and this is during the Holocaust, this is one of my principal cases, are said to be behind the so-called Jewish Bolshevism of the Soviet Union and these Jewish plutocracies, as Goebbels called them, of the Western allies. Or conversely, it can be that the victim group is the stalking horse for outside forces. So in my other principal case in Cambodia, this is how the Vietnamese minority was understood mm. and, and other yet other as, as well. And so the, just to kind of kind of close this out here, there's one more uh, main switch that needs to be turned on. This is the third conception of the victim group. And that is that they have to be understood in a dehumanized way. Now, this doesn't, in my view, cause genocide to happen because we see dehumanization in all sorts of different kinds of human rights violations and use of violence. Uh, so that's not particular to genocide itself, and I don't think it's a causal mechanism, but it makes the extermination, physical liquidation of victims psychologically and morally possible once these other two switches have already been turned on and the decision to commit genocide mm. has already been made. So that's a wonderful um, kind of broad uh, summary of your theory. Let, there's no, for, let me first say uh, to readers, this is a very, very rich um, uh, approach and framework and, and and you really should go look at the book because it's, it's, it's a remarkably good book. Um, but we don't have time to unpack everything. So let me, let me ask some questions. So, I'm intrigued by the issue of time and time scale, because the the first part of that funnel, at least as as you discuss it in your case studies, reaches far back, mm -hmm. um, decades or centuries, and the kind of turning of the switches that you identify in your case studies happens really quite rapidly. So I'm wondering yeah. if you can say something about that time scale. Is our genocidal uh, decisions for genocide necessarily based on a centuries-long history of creating this kind of exclusionary environment? Can that emerge more quickly? And and can these switches be turned more gradually? How do, how do you think of time in this? That's a really interesting question. I hadn't really thought about it that way. So I when I was kind of constructing this theory, I, I had these two principal cases in mind, but I was thinking kind of inductively, right? So mm -hmm. looking, thinking about what I know about a bunch of different kinds of cases. And I should say here that uh, in the book, I, I restrict this theoretical approach to what I call mass violence genocide. So I, mm -hmm. I don't think it would work particularly well to explain, say, settler colonial genocides, mm -hmm. particularly in, a, in like the Canadian case, for example, that don't involve a lot of state-sponsored violence. So it seems to me that this kind of the first part where I talk about this exclusionary socio-political environment, I don't think there's any reason kind of theoretically or logically why that would necessarily have to be something that is established over a very lengthy period of time. But of the cases that we can think about, almost all perpetrators eventually will construct or will, will kind of hearken back to either explicitly or kind of tacitly a very, very long history mm -hmm. of this, of, a, of an interaction with, with the victim group along a, a series of different lines. And this kind of political habit of engaging in authoritarian responses to conflict do usually seem to be something that is relatively long-standing. However, uh, if we're talking about relatively new states, uh, it, it could be the case that you might have a relatively new state, say, you know, like Cambodia that becomes mm -hmm. independent in the 1950s. That particular state may have a, uh, a relatively short history in terms of how it deals with conflict. But as I show in that case, they do draw on uh, you know, a very long pre-colonial history uh, of, of response to conflict. And then not so much how the French do it, but it's that long history is important. So I think, kind of to answer your question, I think from a, we think about this theory on its logical foundations, mm -hmm. it's possible, I think, to argue that the 
sociopolitical permissive environment could emerge in a much shorter span of time, and that the, the turning of the switches, as you said, might happen on a, a different kind of time schedule. But as I now thinking through cases that I'm sort of familiar with, I, I would be hard pressed to find cases in which you actually wouldn't have a fairly long mm-hmm. period of time in which that sociopolitical environment is laid. And then the turning of the switches, because it does kind of attend a series of kind of radicalized decisions, usually are, I think, sort of off the top of my head now, usually are fairly compressed in time. Mm-hmm. And, and a similar kind of question, and you, you actually address this a little bit more specifically in the book. Um, is this linear or can it be iterative? And what I mean by that is you talk about how in, in Germany or Cambodia, the order these switches are turned on differs somewhat. Um, how do the how does this interaction between crisis and these turning of the switches happen? Um, and can it happen? It doesn't seem like it could happen in the other direction, but can it be iterative? I think it probably can be. And so uh, you're you're right. In the in the two cases, uh, it's not necessarily a kind of stage theory. And we can even see in in both the cases that I look at, even before the kinds of triggering crises occur, the the a kind of pre-version, I guess, or prefiguring of the uh, foreign uh, mortal threat mm-hmm. and dehumanizing switches are already kind of there. So you know, if we think back to uh, the you know Hitler's Mein Kampf, right? This happens before the Nazis come to power. It happens before the decision to commit genocide is made. But a lot of those kinds of conceptual switches are already kind of there. And so I, I think you're right. There can be maybe a, a sort of a predisposition toward those switches being turned on, so to speak, later on, even before crises occur. Then you might have crises which aren't necessarily all going to happen. Um, at exactly the same time, you mm-hmm. might have a period of, say, political crisis that is then uh, kind of dealt with. It's, it's a kind of a smoother period. Then it re- then it reappears again. And so I think one could imagine it being an, an iterative process. And I, I think we'll, we'll end up with genocide, unfortunately, if after either kind of a successive process mm-hmm. or an iterative one, if that really critical second switch is turned on for a kind of sustained moment. And it's in that moment, it seems to me, that that final kind of culmination of radicalized decision-making comes to that genocidal point mm-hmm. of decision-making. So so maybe then to follow up, how, how does that switch get turned on? Is it, and can it be from the bottom up? I'm, I'm thinking about histories of Rwanda and how often they point to things like the emergence of the radio station RTLM, right. the newspaper Kangura, um, as which are in some sense both are elite sponsored, but are consumed and in some ways propagated by non-elites. So, so how does that second switch get turned? If that's so critical, how does that happen? You know, this is one of the things that I struggled with a lot when I was putting the book together. And I I ultimately took the approach, this is sort of in the introduction to that third part of the book, mm-hmm. in which I basically say, I actually don't yeah. entirely know, empirically in either of these two cases or theoretically, I was not really able to come up with a determination of how it gets turned on. All I could know for certain was that it does get turned on. And mm-hmm. if it, or, or not, not, maybe not put it that way, but if it is turned on, then we are much more likely to end up with genocide. Um, in the in the two cases that I look out at, I think we can say that that it's mostly a, a top down kind of um, approach. When I first started the project, I thought that the turning on of these three switches, and particularly that middle mortal threat conception one, was going to be one in which I would empirically show how there was kind of an interaction between the state and so-called ordinary members of society, Mm -hmm. people who were not targeted by either of these regimes. And then I had a harder time, I had a hard time substantiating that, particularly in the Cambodia case, because we just don't have, I think, that kind of knowledge. 
and and really not that kind of interaction with the Khmer Rouge. And in the in the German case, you know, Ian Kershaw has done uh, some really good historical work in which he is able to tap, to a certain degree, the orientation of Germans toward Jews and the emergence of the final solution as, as much as they knew about it and as much as could be shown in the historical record. But I wasn't really certain that that gave me a kind of purchase for how it got turned on. It was really that it got turned on. But I, I think mm-hmm. you're right. In, in cases like Rwanda, the state is very clearly because they, they need or, and want to have public participation in the genocide itself. It's critically important for them to have used the radio and Kangura uh, and other methods to have this kind of threat conception that I talk about of the of the Tutsi minority uh, and I and I you know moderate Hutus too to be turned on by the population. Whereas in the the uh, say in the Nazi case, all that the Nazi party needed was just to have ordinary Germans not become mm. resistant or other European populations in occupied Europe to become resistant to the final solution. But I think you're, you're, you're right that in depending on the case, it may be a kind of interaction between society and the state. I, I don't, I, I'm less convinced that there are a lot of cases in which we can say the drive for genocide can originate or, or does originate in a kind of societal upward pressure, mm-hmm. a kind of mm-hmm. grassroots calling for this kind of extermination. To, uh, it could very well be that I, I do have this kind of political science bias to to take the state and political <laughs> actors and institutions as the main, as the real game in town. But it, it really does seem to me that in in like modern cases, we're, we're talking about the state or some kind of comparable authority, something like the Islamic State, for example, uh, in their att- genocidal attack on the Yazidis, that they are really driving this process. They kind of initially conceive of it, but in like I like you know you said in the Rwanda case, the part of their plan depends on having popular not just buy-in and tacit acceptance, but active participation. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned the case studies. Why why Germany and Cambodia as case studies and and obviously we can't go chapter by chapter through this but but what did you find by comparing those that really helped formulate the theory in your mind right so i have kind of two answers to that question one mm. is a more sophisticated uh, methodological answer and one is not so much so i'll start with the more sophisticated <laughs> answer first so i i'm in comparative politics and so my my training at the university of toronto was in a kind of a version of comparative politics that uh is uh qualitative and historical so what what we do in comparative politics is that we try to generate and then test more generalizable theories by having more than one case and so uh one way to to, to do this is to try to figure out how much, um, what the content of a theory would be first by by thinking about different cases and then inductively arriving at theoretical uh, propositions based on the kind of empirical circumstances of these cases. Uh, But then the other, the thing I was really trying to get at with both the Holocaust case and the Cambodia case is to try to figure out what the scope conditions were of the theory. That is to say, how much the variation across different genocides that the theory could explain. So I I took, I selected these two cases. I was going to do a lot more cases, but then I thought this is going to end up being just like ginormously huge Mm -hmm. and, and I had to kind of narrow it down. So I took the Holocaust. I know it's controversial now for some good reasons to to use the Holocaust as a case. And I, I tried to avoid using it as a kind of Holocaust uniqueness thing in which, you know, it's the main event and Cambodia mm-hmm. is there to mm-hmm. see if it can measure up. But what I was trying to do is to basically say the Holocaust is this kind of paradigmatic um, racial slash, you know, ethnic genocide. And so I figured any kind of theory needed to explain that case. And then I picked Cambodia because in many ways it is quite different. So it's a kind of a most different comparison as the 
political scientist Jaworski and Tooney said way back in the early 1970s. So the levels of development are different, the different mm -hmm. time period, their uh, kind of economic foundations are totally different, different parts of the world, different kinds of victims, different kinds of per perpetrators, different ideological frameworks. And so I thought if the if I kind of construct this theory out of these different cases and then test it against them, then that might be able to show how much variation, you know, across different manifestations of modern mass violence genocides we could we could um, mm -hmm. we could apply it to. Mm -hmm. the The less sophisticated answer is these were two cases that I already knew yeah. a fair bit about, uh, and so I I particularly included the Cambodia case because as I you know, mentioned before when I did my master's thesis I was next door in Vietnam trying to explain why the Vietnamese Communist Party opted for economic reforms in 1986. And mm. so I was quite familiar with the Vietnam War era, with uh, post-1975 Vietnamese politics. And so since the two of them were so entwined with each other during the war and then with um, Vietnam's intervention in uh, in Cambodia in 1979, which then lasts until essentially 1989, I already had a fairly good sense of, of that part of the world. And so I, I moved next door to Cambodia. And there's kind of a, a third reason that I included the Cambodia case. And, and that is, it, it is to me one of the most perplexing cases out there, not just because there are these kind of questions about how much it conforms to the genocide convention, but because the behavior of the Khmer Rouge in the implementation of their revolution, and then the genocide that to my mind is part and parcel of that revolution, is so seemingly bizarre that I wanted to try to figure out what was going on. And mm. I wanted to see whether this theory I'd come up with could explain what is otherwise some of the most bizarre behavior. And what I found in my kind of initial research was the way in which the Khmer Rouge constructed the identity of their many victims, the socioeconomic middle-class so-called new people deported from the cities, uh, the Vietnamese minority, the, the Mon Khmer minority, or sorry, the, the, uh, the Cham minorities, the, the Chinese minority, often echoed almost verbatim the way in which the Nazis talked about the Jews or conceptualized mm. the Jews. So it seemed to me that despite this enormous variation across these two cases, this kind of conceptual understanding, the kind of role that um, uh, crises played in triggering the genocide, and the kind of background conditions that I talked about, they all seemed fairly, the, the details are quite different, but the kind of deep structure is actually quite similar. And you mentioned Vietnam. You have a chapter in Vietnam um, about, I guess, and I'm not sure this is really an appropriate way to talk about this, but the, the dog that didn't bark. Yes. Um, so maybe say, about, say, say more about that. Why, why in Vietnam wasn't there genocide? Right. So this is an interesting thing because when I started looking into the Cambodia case, I can't remember where I was reading this. It was more of a popular thing. I think I saw it in an old issue of the Far Eastern Economic mm -hmm. Review. But the first sentence was something like, the anticipation was at the end of the war in Vietnam in 1975. So the communists come to power in Vietnam and Cambodia in the same month, April of 1975. And so the anticipation was that if something was really going to go south, if there was going to be a bloodbath, if there might be a genocide, that it would happen in Vietnam. But it didn't. It happened in Cambodia instead. And so because I was already quite familiar with the Vietnamese Communist Party particularly, it seemed like a good kind of last little chapter to add in which I was basically doing the standard um, social science thing, controlling for the dependent mm -hmm. variable. Right. Mm -hmm. So I wanted a case where a lot of the kind of background conditions and triggers were present, uh, but then we didn't end up with genocide to try to figure out if my theory could explain that. And so ultimately, I think in the Vietnamese case, the Vietnamese Communist Party during the war never did come to see their enemies in the South. So the member people who were part of the uh, GVM, the government of Vietnam, the South Vietnamese government, or of the Arvin, the Army of the Republic of Vietnam, 
or of socioeconomic classes who supported the South Vietnamese government. The, the North Vietnamese Communist Party at that time certainly saw them as, as enemies and competitors in a conventional sense in the way you would see it in an armed conflict and in a civil conflict. But they never came to see these members of their own political community as outside of that political community or as fundamental threats who posed a threat simply because they continued to exist. Instead, they were seen as, as I, I think I say in the book, as kind of like wayward children, people who have become uh, under the thrall of the French and then the Americans, uh, who have, might have even class interests uh, as capitalists who make them antagonistic to peasants and workers uh, and to the Communist Party in the North, but that this all could ultimately be solved through the defeat of the French, the defeat of the United States and their withdrawal, and then the defeat of the government in the South and the Arvin, and then a kind of remaking post-1975 of united Vietnam into a, a united socialist country. And so it really became more a task in, in the post-1975 period from that moment until the mid-1980s of really trying to make South Vietnamese citizens into new socialist mm. Vietnamese citizens. And so there was never an understanding that these people had to be eliminated. And when some of them, it became apparent, could not be reconciled to the revolution, of course, uh, they, were, they were either you know, escaped or allowed to escape. And then some people who are seen to be recalcitrant, of course, were rounded up into re-education camps and kept incarcerated for almost two decades, in some cases, I should say, over two decades. And I, and I should emphasize here that even though Vietnam didn't turn out to be a genocide, the communist regime engaged in enormous human rights abuses mm. post-1975. The uh, camps themselves were condemned rightly by uh, Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International as uh, you know, as uh, illegal, uh, holding political prisoners uh, in appalling conditions. And so I don't want to underestimate the terrible treatment that the Vietnamese Communist Party regime meted out on its former enemies. Uh, but they, they're, to my mind, at least to the research that I, I engaged with, there was never really a contemplation that extermination had to be part of this process. So I, I think it all did come down to mm -hmm. a fundamentally different way in which the Vietnamese Communist Party saw their defeated enemies. And then the, I think the final thing that's really important is that they were in, you know, to use, as I, I use uh, Manus Miglarski's kind of idea mm -hmm. as the mm -hmm. domain of gains and domain of losses. And so you know, I kind of end the book by saying for the Vietnamese Communist Party, they were winners. I mean, the, the Khmer Rouge won their civil war too, but they had had kind of a near-death experience in the jungle in, the in 1969, just as the civil war was starting. And they always had this huge concern that they were going to be undone, that the revolution would be destroyed, that the party would be destroyed from without and within. And of course, the, 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 the Nazis saw the Jews as this kind of you know, enormous amorphous force of destruction, of, of race pollution, and so on. But for the Vietnamese communists, they saw their nation as a kind of united uh, kind of nation that could accommodate different kinds of um, orientations so long as they were brought in conformity with the revolution. And of course, the, the army and the party had defeated the French, had defeated the Americans, had defeated the South Vietnamese, and then defeated the Chinese in 1979. So they were winners. They had a kind of a, a way of understanding that the party, if it applied the right kind of pressure, could be victorious and did not face this kind of unending string of, of potential and, and you know, real and perceived threats from within and without. And finally, the, that party in its 80-year existence, it's one of the longest uh, running communist parties in the world dating back to 1930, has always been highly pragmatic. So they have been very good at, during the war, uh, for example, in the 1960s and early 70s, of playing uh, the Chinese against the Soviets. They continue to do that until the fall of the Soviet Union, and they even do it now. 
So they are happy to try to re-engage with the United States as partners, even allies. They've even offered to give the United States back access to Kamran Bay as a naval base, Hmm. which had been a Soviet base for many, many years, because now they're trying to find their way to deal with a very powerful Chinese neighbor. And they see the United States, interestingly now, as a possible kind of ally and protector. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. over time, they've been this really, really pragmatic force, whereas the Whereas the the communists in Cambodia were incredibly ideological to the point of having a kind of fantastical version of reality that then leads to all sorts of terrible policy outcomes. Well, our time is starting to draw to a close. Let let me conclude with some broader questions. Um, And and one of them, so I'll start... a couple of years ago, I interviewed Scott Strauss about his book, where he also tries to come up with a theory that explains genocide. And and one of the things he pointed out uh, is is that there are. Like he argued this, and I, given what you said earlier, I think you agree that there are many more cases where potential genocides do not occur than than cases where uh, crises move to genocide. So, if that's true, how do we tell in the moment which is which? Wow, that's an excellent question. I so yes, in the moment, how do we know when we're heading down one side to the other? Mm-hmm. I have to say, I'm not confident that that my own theory gives us yeah. a huge purchase on knowing that at the time. I think it works a lot better retrospectively. I think the one thing I would say, and this is, I've always found this a kind of frustration when genocides appear to be in the offing. So if we think, for example, the last few years prior to the attack on the Rohingya um, mm-hmm. in Myanmar, right? So that happens in the summer of, I guess it was 2017. Uh-huh. But I, you know, but there were lots of us, as you probably know, in the genocide studies community and the human rights community who were ringing the alarm bell mm-hmm. as far back as 2012. And and one of the things I think my my kind of constructivist research shows is that when uh, elite actors start saying things about uh, a particular group that sound genocidal, it probably really is. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I try to to show in the book, at least in the two cases that I look at, is that these really negative kind of conceptions of um, particular groups as foreign, as existential threats, and as, as non-humans, that... This isn't done, I think, by genocidal elites as, in an instrumental way. They're not doing it just to kind of motivate a kind of other constituency, uh, non-victim, ordinary people, so to speak, to kind of uh, sign on to, say, a robust policy of discrimination or something like that. My view is that when elite actors start talking that way, they mean it. That is really how they're not just kind of making up a story that they think other actors want to hear and they actually secretly think something else about the victims. They actually really do subscribe to these conceptions of a particular group. And once you start hearing that kind of discourse, then it might not be automatic that we're going to see a genocide down the road or crimes against humanity, war crimes, something like that. But I think it becomes much less likely because, as I said, this creates in elite actors own mind a kind of strategic and moral space in which maybe previously unacceptable kinds of decisions become at the least possible, whereas they might not have been possible before. So I think once we start hearing that rhetoric, the international community really does start to need to pay attention. Um, But of course, this runs into a kind of perennial problem with genocide intervention and prevention. Mm -hmm. And that is the kind of resources and political willingness and all of that kind of stuff to actually become involved as a preventative, you know, in, in some kind of preventative um, strategy. Um, and a similar question, uh, or may, maybe a related question, uh, academics build sophisticated, thoughtful theories that are supported by extensive research and require careful attention and time to read and consider and absorb. Um, how do we explain these kind of this kind of sophisticated theorizing to to politicians and foreign policy officials who 
We're so afraid, uh, busy with day-to-day crises, they barely have time to think. What, what's the role of theory in the everyday world? I think it is a mechanism for taking the kind of vast array of data that policymakers face, right? They've got all sorts of decisions they have to make. There's all sorts of data points out there they have to consider that you know span a whole bunch of different issue areas. And it's really a way of taking the information available about an unfolding circumstance that uh, and sort of takes all of that information that can seem disparate and confusing and then filters it into a way of making it a little bit more understandable and then also might be a way of kind of giving some directionality to what might happen. So here's mm-hmm. a, might be a way of saying, okay, here's all this information we've got. Here's this theory that can kind of sort it all out to kind of give you some explanation of how we, how we are here now. And then some kind of, I hate to use the word prediction because I don't know mm-hmm. that social science theories do this particularly well, but some kind of purchase on what the possible outcomes might be. I, I really like the idea of thinking more in terms of probability. So you would say more to policymakers, here's the situation as this theory might kind of understand it. And here's the kind of probabilities of what the near and longer term mm-hmm. outcomes might be. And so take that information, policymakers, and then then hopefully do something with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I, I'd like to be optimistic and say, you know, it would be great if the, you know, your government, government in Canada, the UK and elsewhere, you know, were kind of thinking about gross human rights violations as top of mind. Uh, unfortunately, uh, we're just not in that space. We mm-hmm. haven't been in that space, I don't think, really ever. And we're certainly not in that space now. So it's much more of an uphill struggle, I fear, that you know, to get policymakers to pay attention to some extremely serious circumstances. And I guess one thing I just kind of want to emphasize here is mm-hmm. that even though we're genocide study scholars and, and that's where, where my research is, I think it's really important not to put genocide in this kind of kind of yeah. pedestal situation in which we say, okay, if, unless I can say, here's my here's my theory, here's this fact situation unfolding, and I think it's maybe going to be a crime against humanity and not genocide, or say it's during an armed conflict. So it looks like we're going to have some significant war crimes committed against civilian populations. I would emphasize to to policymakers and and to analysts alike that that is still extremely seriously. You know, it, it's not just a matter of we react to this thing called genocide, but we don't react to anything else mm-hmm. because that seems less important. So crimes against humanity, that's still really terrible. So, mm-hmm. you know, the situation in Cameroon right now so it might not be at this genocide level, although some kind of advocates for the Anglophone community there have said that it is. I'm, I'm not sure that we can say that yet. But we can certainly see that there are some significant war crimes taking place and some significant crimes against humanity. And to my mind, that's sufficient for some kind of international response. What that response should be, I'm not sure. But I think we want to make sure that, you know, we don't want to just kind of aim toward specifically genocide prevention and intervention. It's more atrocity prevention and intervention. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a fascinating book, and I encourage everybody who's listening to this to go out and and, and get it uh, and and to read it carefully. Uh, We always um, end, Maureen, with the the same two questions. Uh, And the first one is simple, uh, although maybe more urgent given the time scale. We're taping this in early August. For those of us uh, who are listening to you who are in teaching, that means we have maybe one more weekend to do something we want to do before we get to uh, our actual jobs. Right. Maybe you can suggest, um, or can you suggest, uh, a book or a movie or something um, that you think the audience should read or listen to that was was important for you while you were thinking about these issues? Yes, I now I'm going to suggest something that actually was got me in the very distant past to mm. to where I am now. It doesn't deal with genocide, but it is a, a Vietnam related thing that kind of got me where I am, and that is. Uh, it's now a fairly old memoir published in the 1970s by the journalist and author Philip Caputo called A Rumor uh, yeah. War. Mm-hmm. And so I read this book way back when I was, I think, 13 years old. And it was the first book I read 
that I actually thought was interesting. Prior to that time, I'm old enough that the kind of expectation of what young girls and young teenage girls mm. would was all Laura Ingalls Wilder or here in Canada, Lucy Maud Montgomery and, you know, Anne of Green Gables and stuff like that. And I just hated those books. I was not interested in them at all. And so I, after watching a, a documentary in which Caputo was one of the participants, I read his memoir. And so I, what I, I still think is important about that book is it is, he gives a kind of, at certain points, is kind of a larger analysis of, of what armed conflicts are like, what the kind of tragedy of war is like, um, the effect that it has on civilians. And then, because out of his later profession as a journalist, mm -hmm. but when he talks about his own experience as a very young infantry officer, or um, Marine, I should say, uh, officer, he tells us what violence is like, on an, what, what organized violence is like, and how truly terrible it is, what a human tragedy it is, um, the kinds of kind of sometimes laudable and heroic behavior that can emerge out of it, and the kind of debased and depraved behavior that can be a part of it. And so I, I still think of that book a lot. I think it's it's not about genocide itself, mm -hmm. but it is about violence and conflict and individuals and groups and policy, all in a kind of interesting and complex way. So I, if you're sort of thinking about that, I think that's, I think that's important. And the other thing I, I would suggest is, and I know many listeners probably have read this already, and I had an occasion to pick up um, Meta Mouse, which in 2011 was a book that was celebrated the 25th anniversary of Arch Spiegelman's publication, mm. Mouse mm -hmm. 1 and 2. And so Meta Mouse itself is a really interesting kind of years-long set of interviews with Spiegelman as he talks about how he created that book. And I, I think, you know, Mouse and Meta Mouse are really important reads because they tell us, especially as, as genocide studies scholars who sort of like in, in, in my way of approaching it is very theoretically oriented. I think sometimes I, my concern is that I will lose touch with the humanity mm. of, of what genocide is. And I think that mouse, even though he uses, you know, the, the, the mask of the, the mouse for the, for the Jews and the cats for the, the Nazis and so on, it is such an incredibly kind of human story of, you know, of survival and of, of um, you know, of what the Holocaust was like for the people who went through it, that I think it it really kind of gives us a window on what that experience was like. And and the reason I mention this is right at the very beginning of the book, I, I say that, you know, the book is trying to tell us what, like, the kind of logic of genocidal violence is like, mm -hmm. which is something I think scholars can do. But one thing, at least I feel I can't do, is to really understand the experience of genocide. It hasn't happened to me, so I don't know. But mm -hmm. the one book that I've read that l looks at that experience that really, I think, gets me as close as I think as I can be is Mouse and then mm. the kind of meta-mouse reflections in the, in the third volume. Well, that's wonderful. Thank you. Um, and the last question we always ask is, is maybe unfair, although your book is a couple years old, so you've had a little bit of a break. Um, what are you working on now? Oh, yes. Well, I actually am working on a new book. Uh, sadly, I'm right at the very beginning of it. So I'm having that kind of <laughs> angst What you think, oh, my God, this, you know, several years long project is looming in front of me. But so so what I'm doing is I'm marrying what I have been teaching, which is many academics experience. It's not the stuff that I do my research on. So I'm mm -hmm. trying to bring the two of them together. So I teach courses on law and politics, domestic law and politics or comparative law and politics, international law and politics and law and armed conflict. So I'm trying mm -hmm. to take all of that kind of stuff and stick it with my genocide things. And what I want to do is try to kind of develop the work of people like Jennifer Belint and a little bit of Alex Alvarez, who have looked at the role of genocide of law in the perpetration of the crime of genocide, mm -hmm. not the subsequent prosecution and prevention. So that's basically what the book will look like. The first half, I think anyway, will look at how the, the role that law plays in mass violence genocides and, and basically to try to explain why it exists in the kind of pre-destruction phase, but then falls away in hmm. the kind of actual extermination phase. And secondarily, why certain kinds of cases 
don't seem to have a role for law at all. And then the second part of the book is going to look at uh, settler colonial genocides, looking mm. particularly at Canada at a case of so-called cultural genocide through forced assimilation, in which I argue that, I think I will argue, that a the because it is a, a genuine rule of law um, system, the law actually was one of the primary weapons in this genocide, mm. in, in a way that isn't a violation of what we think law is, but is entirely consistent with a real kind of liberal democratic understanding of what the rule of law constitutes. So that's what I'm, I'm starting to work on now. Well, that sounds a, like a fascinating project. Uh, I have to say I'm a little bit envious of you and the idea that you have that anxiety only at the beginning of a project rather than at the end. <laughs> Well, I'm, due to get to, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, I'm due to get page proof sometime in the next couple of days, and I'm dreading having to go through those at the beginning oh, of the semester. Yes, but... yes. Oh, yes. Well, good luck with that. <laughs> but I hope, um, I hope when you're finished, first of all, I hope it doesn't take several years. But secondly, I hope when you're finished, you'll uh, you'll come back on the show and talk about your new book. Um, but for now, thank you so much for joining us. We've um, really enjoyed it and appreciated it. Um, and I hope that the beginning of your school year goes wonderfully. Oh, well, thank you. Well, fortunately for me, I'm on a one-year research leave, so... Uh, oh, sorry. <laughs> now everybody's jealous. <laughs> exactly. But thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. <laughs>